I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 43, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 63 to 82. And I'll start with the last paragraphs of chapter 2. According to Edward Peters, author of the landmark study Inquisition, the essential purpose of the Inquisitors was to save the souls of the heretics and those close to them and to protect the unity of the church. This was in sharp contrast to the secular courts where the objective to the where the objective in the sentencing of convicted heretics was strictly a punitive one. The sentences were given out by the officers of the Inquisition the sentences given out by the officers of the Inquisition were issued in the form of penance following an act of contrition and a promise for reform by the penitent and absolution by the priest. Peters noted that sodomy and bestiality were part of the general class of moral offenses that were the legitimate concern of spiritual and temporal courts in an age when religion was regarded as a fundamental bond and basis of all social, political, and legal structures. Although the state was entitled to take independent action, it was the church that exercised jurisdiction over homosexual offenders. The church, guided by canon law, undertook the role of spiritual rehabilitation of the offending cleric or layman and leveled suitable penances upon those convicted of sexual sins and crimes and crime, and as a whole, the Inquisition tempered its justice with restraint and compassion in dealing with sex offenders, especially the young. However, cases involving unrepentant habitual sodomites or those which involved sexual violence, rape, the seduction of minors or incompetence or heretical religious practices were turned over to the state for punishment. It was the state and not the pope or the inquisitors acting in his name that pronounced and carried out the sentence for these grave crimes, which was usually death by fire, the common punishment for capital crimes in those times. Throughout the remainder of the 13th century, and for the next 200 years, the period of European history known as the Renaissance, the condemnation and punishment of sodomy as a crime against God and the state would remain essentially unchallenged and unchanged. Chapter 3, The Renaissance. Introduction, the humanistic revival of classical art, literature, and learning known as the Renaissance began in Italy in the 14th century and spread throughout Europe over the next 250 years. It was an era that witnessed great historical changes for both church and state, including the rise of nationalistic tendencies among the secular powers which helped fuel the Reformation in Germany in 1517 and England in 1533. The discovery of the New World revolutionized European commerce and economics, stimulating the development of urbanization in the great cities of Europe and the rise of a new ruling class of wealthy merchants and bankers. There was also a weakening of the Christian moral life, especially among the upper classes and the church hierarchy, not excluding the Roman Curia and papacy, for whom temporal consideration generally overrode any competing religious and moral considerations. It was said of the Renaissance period that in the 
quest for the ideal Christian life, the cult of holiness had been replaced by the cult of greatness. Given the sad state of ecclesiastical affairs, it is more than passing interest that the only Renaissance Pope to be canonized was St. Pius V, 1566-1572, whose pontificate was marked by a zealousness for the purity of the faith and a campaign for moral reform of the laity and, the cl- and clergy that included an end to the vice of sodomy, which the Pope termed the execrable libidinous vice against nature. At the personal level, the universality and objectiveness of Christian morals were undermined by the new heretical doctrines of the Protestant reformers, including justification by faith alone without reference to good works. The denial of freedom of will, which furnished an excuse for moral lapses and the personal certainty of salvation in faith, i.e. subjective confidence in the merits of Christ. In terms of sexual morality, however, it would be a mistake to characterize the Renaissance as a period of unbridled sexual license in which all expressions of carnal lust and sexual excesses were equally tolerated if not encouraged. This most certainly was not the case. For whatever his moral feelings and materialistic tendencies, the Renaissance man remained at the very core of his being fundamentally religious. This perhaps is the best explanation as to why throughout Europe, throughout Renaissance Europe and England, the pervading, the prevailing common sense view of sodomy was that it was an abomination. Studies on sodomy in Renaissance Italy, among the best, among the great city-states that emerged in Italy during the Renaissance period, was the Republic of Florence, considered by many to be the original model for the modern state in the world and birthplace of Dante Alighieri and the First Medici and the Republic of France, business mistress of the seas and center of Italian industry and commerce. Both Florence and Venice vied for the title of the birthplace of statistical science, and both city-states kept detailed historical records, including population statistics and legal and juridical records, including convictions for sodomy and other vices, making them an historian's paradise. In recent years, a number of historiographers have chronicled the rise of homosexual practices in Renaissance Italy and Europe. Oxford Press has published at least two major works on the subject. Guido Ruggiero's The Boundaries of Eros, Sex, Crime, and Sexuality in Renaissance Venice, 1985, and Michael Rock's Forbidden Friendships, Homosexuality in the Male and Male Culture in Renaissance Florence, 1996. In 1989, Harrington Press, an imprint of Haworth Press, Inc., that publishes a large number of homosexual texts, published a more generalized study, The Pursuit of Sodomy, Male Homosexuality in Renaissance and Enlightened Europe, edited by Kent Gerard and Gert Herkina. The term sodomy, as used 
in all these historical references encompassed a broader definition than strictly anal penetration and general usage. Sodomy was equated with male same-sex acts of every kind, including mutual masturbation and palatial. However, the terms sodomite and bugger were usually reserved for the man who, has in, who was judged to be addicted to the vice and who took the active role in the same-sex act, typically with a younger partner. As you shall see throughout Europe, sodomy in all its forms was a dangerous and punishable crime with penalties ranging from large fines and exile to burning at the stake, sodomy in Renaissance Florence. In his excellent study on sodomy and the evolution of the office of the knight in Florence, Michael Rock made it clear that for the Renaissance male, man, homosexual behavior and not homosexual identity remained the cornerstone of common thought on the subject. Florentines felt no compulsion to organize their understanding and representation of sexuality, sexuality based on sexual deviancy alone, he said. In their mind, no man, in their mind, any man was seen as being capable of engaging in sodomy as well as normal sexual relations with women. Hence, they did not seek to segregate males exclusively according to the object of their sexual desires. As Rock pointed out early in his study, long before the Renaissance period, Florence suffered the reputation of being the capital of two vices, used to be practiced by the international merchant banking houses like Bardi and Peruzzi and Sodomy, among Italians and foreigners alike to sodomize was dubbed Florenzen and a sodomite a Florenzer. He noted, as for the Florentines, they insisted that sodomy was an important vice brought into the city by wayfarers and brigands. Trapassi or Malandrini, among the sociological factors that contributed to the general atmosphere of lax morals and pra the practice of sodomy, in particular in Renaissance Florence, said Rock, were the catastrophic demographic consequences of the Black Death and subsequent famine and social and political anarchy. In addition to the Great Plague of 1348 to 1350, there were recurrent episodes in 1363, 13 to 1364, 1400, 1417, 1423 to 1424, and 1430. With its tradition of pederasty. How pervasive was the vice in Florence? Rocker reported that historical records of the early Renaissance period support the charge that all social strata were infected with the vice the rich and the poor, the layman and the cleric, the citizen and the foreigner were said to practice sodomy taverns, public baths, houses of gambling and prostitution, and certain public locations such as the Via Tra Pellicini Street of the Furriers were notorious gathering places for sodomites. Rock also identified certain occupations that were 
popularly associated with sodomy, including the armed forces, the theater, the arts, and teaching, teaching dance and fencing. Was there something resembling a homosexual subculture in Renaissance Florence? Rock answered no, although he did document the existence of discrete networks or circles of sodomites that met the needs of men desiring same-sex contact. These groupings, however, did not form a separate sexual minority in the modern sense, he explained. Rather, they were absorbed into the larger and more general framework of illicit sexual activities that thrived in the male-dominated culture of Florence. His comments on the subject are worth quoting in full. Enmeshed in these dense and often far-flung webs of affiliation, sodomy in Florence had a marked collective character. The extensive and multifaceted networks of association and friendships among sodomites and others sympathetic to them help account for the vitality of sodomy in the community and consequently for the difficulty of eradicating it. Pederasty dominates the Florentine scene. As as to the particular form that male sodomy took in Florence, there was no question that it followed the same pattern that had dominated the Mediterranean scene centuries before the coming of Christ. It was pederasty in the classical Greek mode with only minor divergences. The Rock study demonstrated that homosexual relations in Florence followed a strict hierarchical form that included an older male between the ages of 19 and 30 and a younger male, usually a teenage boy, between the ages of 14 to 16. The former took the manly active or dominant role and the latter the passive or feminine role. According to Rock, these roles were rarely exchanged except where two adolescent peers were involved in mutual sex play in order to attract and seduce handsome young sex partners. Older Florentines employed traditional inducements similar to those involved in the Greek Eromenos Orestes relationship. Money, gifts, and in some cases, the promise of social advancement. If the youth was very poor, an offering of food or housing was usually sufficient to entice him to, entice him to sexual service, Rock remarked. Obviously, the more pleasure that the adult male could give his young partner, the easier it was to secure his continued cooperation in the homosexual relationship. Rock noted that the Venetian libertine priest Antonio Rocco, who in his Apologia for Pederasty, La Sabayati Fanciulu a Scala circa 1630, contended that while the adolescent takes natural and physiological pleasure in being penetrated, it is a conscientious lover's duty to foster that pleasure. From the vantage point of the younger partner, sodomy was also seen as a transitional venture on the way to traditional heterosexual marriage. Rock made the important point that although some men referred to their younger sexual companion as their girl or their woman, 
and to boy prostitutes as bitches, the teen partners themselves do not appear to suffer from any sexual gender identity crisis. That is, they do not think of themselves as women, even though they were, even though they permitted their bodies to be used like women. The one of the most important revelations of the Rock study was that consensual homosexual relationships involving two grown men were virtually unheard of in France. As Rock stated, sex between mature men was, with rare exceptions, unknown. It was considered both dishonorable and feminine for any full-grown man to play the woman's part. Even those men who sought the out same-sex relations exclusively, he said, habitual or inveterate sodomites were known to exist in Renaissance Florence as a small group of older unmarried men, but their passive partners were teenage boys, not their peers, Rock explained. Mendicant orders lend campaign for moral reform. Although Florence had among the most severe laws against sodomy in all Europe up until the early 1400s, these statutes were unevenly and sporadically enforced. As noted earlier, patterns of late marriage and the isolation of young women before marriage had ingrained sodomy into the very social fabric of Florentine society, making wholesale enforcement of such laws virtually impossible. Most sodomy cases that made it to the Florentine courts involved notorious habitual offenders, including older men who played the passive role, violent and or statutory male rape, including child abuse and gang rape, blasphemy or sacrilege, or cases in which foreigners were charged with sodomizing Florentine boys. Guilty parties faced harsh punishment, including heavy fines, castration, prison, corporal punishment, exile, and execution. Historian Rock said that the opening of the 15th century marked the beginning of a radical shift in public attitude towards sodomy in Florence, whose citizens demanded a more rigorous enforcement of anti-sodomy laws and an end to laissez-faire tolerance of the vice by public authorities. At the same time, there was an effort to take, there was an effort to make the punishment more aptly fit the crime, especially when the case involved adult first-time offenders and youth. Among the many factors contributed to the public's groundswell for a campaign of moral reform in Florence and other cities of Italy and Europe was the growing popular belief that God had sent the plague famine and incessant fratricidal warfare as a punishment for the widespread practice of sodomy. This apocalyptic message that recalled the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone for the crime of sodomy was reinforced by the two of the greatest preachers of repentance in the of the late Middle Ages, the saintly Franciscan Italian missionary and miracle worker St. Bernardino of Siena and the remarkable Dominican moral reformer Geromolo Savernola. St. Bernardino of Siena, 1380-1444. to 
known worldwide as the Apostle of Italy, the Mendicant Friar, Bernardino Deli Albazzecchi, transversed the great cities and smaller villages of central and northern Italy for more than 40 years with his call to the faithful, including his own brothers of the observant and order of friars minor to reform their lives. Born into a noble and influential Sienese family, Bernardino, like St. Peter Damien, suffered the loss of his parents at a young age and was likewise reared by relatives, in this case his pious aunts. In 1402, at the age of 21, Bernardino received the Franciscan habit at the Friary of San Francisco in Siena that belonged to the observant branch of the Order of Friars Minor. Two years, have, two years later, after his profession and ordination, he founded a new observant friary outside the city called La Capriola, where he had where he led a quiet and secluded life of prayer and study of holy scripture. It was not until twelve years later in fourteen seventeen that Bernardino emerged from the friary to begin his public ministry to promote morality and regenerate Italian society under the banner of the holy name of Jesus. As all his biographers, including Franco Marmando, have confirmed in an age when preaching was the most important means of mass communication and mass instruction of the faithful, the holy and charismatic Bernardino drew thousands upon of listeners from by his ser- to his sermons, many of which, by necessity, were pre- preached in the town square to accommodate the vast crowd. His audience embraced the entire spectrum of society said Marmando, from the most influential and powerful personages of church and crown to the poorest and humblest laborers, farmers and servants, from the most educated circles of society to the most illiterate peasant. Yet the friar's message remained the same for one and all, repent and reform your lives. Bernardino attacks sodomy in Lenten message. With the same vigor and and explicitness of St. Peter Damien, 370 years before him, the Bernardino rarely missed an opportunity to denounce the sin from which even the devil flees in horror, the sin of sodomy, explained Marmando. Not surprisingly, when the famous preacher from Siena was invited by the by Florentine civic, not ecclesiastical officials, to deliver a series of Lenten sermons in 1424 and 1425 to rally popular support for moral reform, including the abolition of sodomy. His audience was hardly a disinterested one. These lengthy sermons demonstrated a remarkable knowledge of some of the causal factors that we now associate with homosexuality as well as insights into the nature of the vice and effects it produces on males unfortunate enough to be caught up in the vice. St. Bernardino preached, No sin has greater power over the soul than the one of cursed sodomy, which was always detested by those who lived according to God. Such passion for undue forms borders on madness. This vice disturbs the 
intellect breaks an elevated and generous state of mind, drags great thoughts to petty ones, makes moral pusillanimous and irascible, obstinate and hardened, servilely soft and incapable of anything, sodomized, unrepentant, will suffer more pains in hell than anyone else because this is the worst sin there is. Raka, also among the friar's biographers, recorded that Bernardino portrayed the inveterate sodomite as a man who is apathetic toward the fair sex, opposed to marriage, a hater of children, and practitioners of sterile and perverted sexual practices which greatly offended God. In his sermons, the friar claimed that some men who become habitual sodomites in their youth continue to use boys sexually as immaturity, and that these individuals, once past the age of 32 or 33, found it especially difficult to give up the vice, said Rock. The holy friar showed remarkable insight into the problems a woman is likely to expect should she marry a habitual sodomite. According to Rock, Bernardino offered this general rule, the greater a sodomite he is, the more he will hate his wife, as pretty as she may be. The friar noted that in addition to being reminded daily that her husband preferred boys to her, there was also the danger that he might force his unnatural passion, passions on her, on her, Rock recorded. Reflecting on the dangers of rampant unrest and intrigues that characterized Florentine and political life, Florentine political life, it was the friar drew a connection between homosexual homoerotic loyalties and the subversion of the common good. He was not alone in his thinking, said Rock. An earlier 1418 Florentine law sought to exclude from civic and guild offices any convicted or suspected sodomites on the basis that they might conspire with one another against the state. But sodomites were not the only objects of Bernardino's scathing attacks, observed Rock. The friar also lashed out against parents who failed to set a good religious and moral example for their children and who do not properly monitor and discipline their adolescent sons. Also, along, along similar lines, Marmando confirmed that the fire preacher condemned the emasculating mother who encouraged effeminacy of dress and manners in her son, either to psychologically unman him or, in some cases, to attract wealthy and influential male suitors for the boy. Bernardino did not overlook the rich and powerful and the privileged in his condemnation of sodomy nor was he above warning the populace of the alleged favoritism towards sodomites by the powerful Medici and Raka, said Raka. Finally, Bernardino attacked the ease with which sodomites escaped punishment in both Florence and his own city of Siena and demanded that public officials strictly enforce the laws against sodomy in order to restore social and moral stability to the city. Given the extraordinary power of the saintly friar to convert 
the hard-hearted and morally indifferent to repentance and reform, we can assume Bernardino was successful in raising the consciousness level of the individual Florentine as to the moral and social dangers of sodomy. However, it took seven long years before Florentine government decided to institute a new program of policing and punishing the crime of sodomy, a program that was directed more at managing and controlling the vice rather than eradicating it. Michael Roque on the Office of the Night. In 1432, the Republic of Florence created the Office of the Night, Ufficiali di Notte, heretofore referred to as the Office, to systematically and vigorously police and prosecute males who engaged in sodomy, including consensual affairs. Rock reported that this gen- that the especially convened judicial judiciary commission was endowed with sweeping investigative and policing powers, and it enjoyed an unprecedented reign of seventy years, during which time it it tried over seventeen thousand cases of sodomy leading to about 3,000 convictions. It is the detailed records of these trials uncovered by Rock which provide such an amazingly intimate look at the practice of sodomy in Renaissance Italy. According to Rock, since the draconian penalties of the past against convicted sodomites did not appear to be effective in curbing the vice, the office decided upon a different strategy, one that was more lenient, especially toward youthful offenders, and put more emphasis on social sanctions, such as public corporal punishment and the use of public ridicule and ostracism. It is obvious, said Rock, that the office saw itself as the court of last resort rather than the rather than first resort in dealing with convicted sodomites. Rock's original research into the history of the office revealed the name manner in which it undertook the task of policing the vice. One of its most prominent features, said Rock, was the leniency shown to the adolescent partner and the de facto acknowledgement by the office that so-called consensual Sex with minors often involved a degree of bribery, intimidation, or threat, or actual violence by the adult male partner. Also, as Rock reminded his readers, although the courts seldom penalized boys who let men sodomize them, families and community evidently had their own ways of punishing, shaming, and even ostracizing them. The primary form of punishment administered by the office was a monetary one, the payment of fines on a sliding scale based on the age and sexual status of the offender. Rock noted that fines were reduced for men who, after being arrested or cited by the office, freely confessed their misdeeds, while those who voluntarily turned themselves into the office confessed their crimes and named their partners were awarded immunity from prosecution. For the most serious cases, there was prison or exile. False accusations were vigorously punished, Rock said. 
As wide as its juridical powers were, however, the office did not have jurisdiction over clerical settlement, Rock said. In 1436, when the office attempted to extend its authority over monasteries, Pope Eugenius IV, 1431-1447, was quick to publicly reject the magistrate's action as an infringement of ecclesiastical privilege. After the officials of the office identified monks, priests, chaplains, vicars, and other members of the clergy as pederasts, they turned their names over to the proper ecclesiastical authorities, including the Inquisition. However, unlike Venice and Valencia, where churchmen were among the conspicuously prosecuted for sodomy, it does not appear that the vice was a prominent feature of the Florentine clergy. However, Rock, Rock did, however, report on a few of the more sensational cases that were tried by, by the church. Rethinking a failed strategy, whatever the original hopes of the founder's office of the night were for the lenient application of the Republic's anti-sodomy laws as a means of controlling spread of the vice by the late fourteen late fourteen fifties it was clear that the strategy had backfired. For a while it was true that earlier draconian measures against sodomites, including castration and capital punishment, did not totally eradicate the vice from the Florentine landscape. It did not necessar necessarily follow that the office's novel policies of leniency, self-denunciation with guaranteed immunity, and a tendency to turn a blind eye to an ever-growing number of adult recidivists would fare any better. According to Rock, by 1458, a full crisis was in the making. As common sense would dictate, the more tolerance the office exhibited toward sodomy, the more the vice increased. Not unexpectedly, the growing network of confirmed sodomites in Florence had taken full advantage of the law to escape punishment and protect and advance their own interests. The Florentine government demanded that the Office of the Night institute a more vigorous and punitive approach to the punishment of sodomites, said, Ro said Brock. The officers of the night countered this order with the argument that such action unfairly discriminated against the poor who made it the bulk of convicted offenders, for unlike the rich, they could not pay larger fines, nor could they escape punishment by going abroad. This conflict of interest, as Rock noted, reflected the considerable differences that often existed between prescriptive forms, norms, and practice between laws against sodomy and their enforcement. In actuality, these differences were never entirely resolved. In 1502, the Office of the Night was dissolved and its responsibilities transferred to other offices. The local magistracy, magistracy continued to handle the everyday garden variety of cases of sodomy among using fines and public humiliation as punishment, reported Rock. More serious and politically 
explosive sodomy cases such as those involving the use of violence and forcible rape, multiple crimes including murder, cases involving Jews, and cases of sodomy that took place in churches were turned over to higher criminal courts such as the Watch of Eight, Rock confirmed. Frat Geralmo Frat Geralmo Savinola Wars Against Sodomy. While this great debate was being carried out in the secular realms in Florence, the Dominican entered the fray in the person of Geralmo Savinola, another of the great religious protagonists of the Renaissance era, whose demand for moral reform sent shockwaves throughout Florence, the papal states in Rome, the seat of the Roman Curia and the papacy. Savignola was born at Ferrara on St. Matthew's Day, September 21, 1542, the third son of a noble family who had come from Padua to settle in Ferrara at the invitation of Niccolo III of the great house of Este, a rival to the Medici, and their patronage of literature, the arts, and science. William Clark, one of Savonola's English biographers, has noted that from early childhood, Savonola possessed a serious, almost sorrowful nature that continued to characterize his adult life and religious ministry. The coming, the young man was in his early 20s when he entered the Dominican order at Bologna to begin a life of prayer, learning, and ascetic practices. In 1481, the preacher's superior sent him to Florence, where it appeared that his strident preaching on the need for repentance and reform offended the ears of the populace, most especially the couriers of the ruling house of Lorenzo de' Medici. Undiscouraged, Savonola went on to preach the gospel message throughout Italy, conferring conferring more and more attention on the book of Revelation and the coming prophecy of the great chastisement to come and the birth of the church that was to follow. He returned to Florence in 1489. Two years later, he was appointed prior to the great monastery of San Marco, whereupon he immediately began his program for the moral reform of the order by establishing a new Dominican congregation that took on the strict observance of the original rule of St. Dominic, a life distinguished by severe austerity, prayer, and learning. The new prior did not demand of others what he himself did not observe. His own life was one of abstemious behavior. He undertook great fast and wore only the coarsest and most patched clothing in an age when clerical fornication, adultery, and concubinage were the rule rather than the exception. No one ever doubted of the chastity of Savonola, the new Dominican charges that he might raise their minds and hearts to God inspired the example of Savonola. Inspired by the example of Savonola, the ranks of his small congregation quickly swelled to 238 monks, many of whom were drawn 
drawn from among the most prominent families of the city. In August 1490, Clark reported, the frate began to publicly preach at the great cathedral of San Marco. Florence was to be the starting point of his new campaign to reform the church, the clergy and religious, and the laity. This time, thousands of Florentines flocked to hear him denounce the immoralities and vanities of the age. A special gallery was erected for young children and youth to more clearly hear Savinola's message, for the monk who had long determined that they held the key to a new, new reformation. With the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent on April 8, 1492, and the subsequent collapse of the Medicean rule and restoration of the Florentine Republic in November 1494, the door was opened to a new era of moral reform modeled along Savinolian lines and a renewed attack against sodomy by the Office of the Night and the Watch of, the, and the watch of Eight. The reforms of the Fanciuli, one of the most interesting aspects of Savinola's program for the eradication of sodomy, as reported by Rock, was that involving the conversion and rehabilitation of the Fanciuli, the delinquent and often violent and licentious adolescent boys of Florence, many of who regularly offered their sexual services as passive partners to the other sodomites of the city. By cutting off the supply, the Florentine preacher reasoned one could diminish, if not eliminate, the demand. Clark reported that following a lengthy period of self-imposed silence that began in October of 1495, Savinola emerged from his monastery in February 1496 to proclaim his new anti-sodomy program directed at the re-education re and religious formation of Florentine boys and youth. For the period it was in effect, it met with extraordinary success. According to Rush Rock, it not only did he persuade many of the young men to turn away from a life of sexual promiscuity and violence in favor of a life of good works and pious devotion, but he also motivated them to police and aggressively reproach those who continued to practice the vice. Perhaps Rocca's most startling and significant revelation concerning Savinola's reform program to, for boys was the fact that as the available pool of young passive partners began to dry up, the city's sodomites were forced to turn to older boys and adult men for sexual favors. Rock's examination of the documents of the Office of the Night revealed that there was a rise in the normal mean age of passive partners from 16 to 18 years old. Rock himself did not speculate on the implications of this historical, historic temporary transition from classical, classic pederasty to more than, to more adult, pure homosexual relations in late 15th century Florence. However, I believe that it is not too old, it is not too far afield to draw at least a partial 
causal relationship between the rise of child protection laws, including the criminalization of pedophilia and the rise of a full-blown male adult homosexual subculture in Italy and throughout Europe in the late 1700s. In the years immediately following the death of Frate Savignola, whose controversial foreign controversial foreign politics and intrigues combined with his public condemnation of papal court immorality led to his excommunication by Pope Alexander the Second Alexander the Sixth fourteen ninety two to fifteen thirty in fourteen ninety seven and his arrest 1492 to 1503 and 1497, and his arrest, torture, and execution at the stake one year later, the tumultuous political sea sawing of anti sodomy legislation in Florence continued unabated well into the 17th century. From Renaissance Florence, we now transport the reader to Renaissance Venice clerical sodomy in Renaissance Venice. In Guido Ruggiero's The Boundaries of Eros, Sex Crime and Sexuality in Renaissance Venice were written 10 years before Rocca's classic study on the sodomy in Florence. We find that by the 1400s, sodomy was once a minor blip on the Venetian moral landscape once a minor blip on the Venetian moral landscape had grown into a major problem for the Republic, infecting all classes of society, including the nobility and clergy. If one, although one finds many similarities between the two city-states of Florence and Venice with regard to the policing of the vice, there are some unique aspects of the Venetian approach that warrant special attention. Now, most especially, the struggle for jurisdiction over the over-offending clerics who have committed capital crimes, including sodomy. I'll end the podcast here, with, uh, and no further reading from the right of sodomy. And so, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.